Welcome to Mind Your Own Karma, The Adoption Chronicles. I'm your host, Melissa Brunetti. In this second season of Mind Your Own Karma, we're tackling the subject of adoption. Yes, adoption most of the time is a wonderful experience. You have the generous birth parents, the excited adoptive parents, and this lucky little baby. Everyone lives happily ever after, right? But what I want you to know is there's so much more to these stories. I'm an adoptee myself, and I want to bring all sides of the adoption journey to you in hopes to educate you and to bring understanding to this subject. We're about to get real and raw here, so let's dive right in. Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Mind Your Own Karma, The Adoption Chronicles. I'm your host, Melissa Brunetti. Today on the show, we have Karina K. Phillips. She is a licensed social worker, and she has also attained her bachelor's and master's degree in social work from the University of Southern Indiana, and is in the process of taking her test to become a licensed clinical social worker. She has worked in a private school with students with severe autism, a domestic violence and homeless shelter, and was a home-based therapist serving clients with active DCS cases where she provided therapy in the client's homes. She now works as a private contractor in an office setting, providing trauma-focused therapy to anyone in need. Karina has worked as a therapist helping children, some of whom were affected by adoption and the foster system. So we're going to find out what's working, what types of therapy she sees as getting results, and what needs to be looked at and modified. And at the end, she tells us about the reunion with her father after being estranged for 18 years. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Mind Your Own Karma, The Adoption Chronicles. Hi, Karina. Hey. Thanks for coming on today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I just want to start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you were led to uh, work with adoptees and foster kids and their families. Yeah, so um, my name is Karina Phillips. I live in Southern Indiana. I'm a mental health therapist and have been for a handful of years now. And so most of my interaction with just the adoption community has been through mental health services. Um, I do have a little bit of personal experience with my family adopting, taking guardianship kind of thing, and then some unofficial taking care of other family members that legal system didn't really do and <laughs> just kind of happened. So. so how does your expertise make a difference in the adoption and foster care process? I know you said you were a trauma therapist. Yes. Yeah. So before I did home-based therapy services, so all of my clients had an active child services case, meaning that either they called requesting help due to unfortunate circumstances or someone called reporting concerns about child safety and then a case was open and that department contracts out to get therapy services or whatever. And so that gave me a lot of interactions with seeing kids be taken from their homes from, you know, situations that I do or don't agree with, but that wasn't my place to say. And I had a lot of work to do with them and they put so much hard work in working on the traumas that removed them from their families and then the trauma of being hopeful about adoptions and adoptions failing and so just really being there to help someone just kind of try and navigate what that does for our minds and our bodies and families. 
So when a family contacts you, is it more that they are having trouble with the child or the child is having problems with the parent? Tell us a little bit about how that works. Right. Um, so now I do office therapy. So I, you know, have an office and someone will call our office wanting therapy services in general. That's typically the parent saying, Hey, we don't know what the heck to do anymore. My child's a problem. And it's usually pointing fingers at the kids saying, Hey, fix it. Um, but for the other job that I had, families would call the department of child services or DCS and either request help because their kids off their rocker and they don't know what to do or concerns from domestic violence, substance use, et cetera. So. So it sounds like you don't just work with adoptees and foster kids. You work with all kinds of children and families. Correct. But you were working in the social system before. Yeah. So I just, the job that you do is just so, so important helping these kids in crisis. And I just can't even imagine and I can just feel their pain. And I don't know if you've read the book, The Primal Wound by Nancy Verrier, but I wanted to read her definition of the primal wound just in case this is someone's first time listening to the podcast. And she says, many doctors and psychologists now understand that bonding doesn't begin at birth, but is a continuum of psychological, physiological, and spiritual events, which begin in utero and continue throughout the postnatal bonding period. When this natural evolution is interrupted by a postnatal separation from the biological mother, the resultant experience of abandonment and loss is an indelibly imprinted upon the unconscious minds of these children, causing that which I call the primal wound. And my question is, did you receive any formal training in that kind of concept of the primal wound? And if you did, what did that look like? What did they tell you? What did they teach you? Right. So being that I wasn't employed by the Department of Child Services, I don't know what trainings they get, unfortunately. But as a mental health therapist, going through just our education, it's very general, right? We can't have a specific college education for, you know, um, everything. But postgraduate, I've gone through very specific trauma trainings, which touches on the neurological aspect, which I absolutely love. I'm a brain nerd. And so I've got to learn a lot about just what attachment is, how whenever it's interrupted, just like you said, it causes a disruption in just our development in general. And that's physical development, emotional development on so many levels that well, honestly, it's really new information just to the mental health community and science community. So I experienced the primal wound as a baby being adopted. And, you know, we just think that babies don't really live a life until they're born. They don't have uh, memories and they don't have feelings and they don't have emotions. And that's just not true. And we're just, I'm just kind of coming to grips with that, to be honest, um, just for myself. But what I'm wondering is you are seeing it affecting older children that are being taken from their birth families because they do remember their birth families and like little babies. So what similarities or differences in their mental health do you see in the different age groups? Yeah, so I've had interactions with kids as young as two years old in the adoption system and then all ages past that. 
And so it looks drastically different. It has the same kind of underlying concepts, but for a toddler, that's those issues are going to look like throwing more tantrums or not attaching in general, just all of these drastic back and forth, but it looks like stereotypical toddler tantrums. So we don't think about it, right? We're just saying, oh, this is the terrible twos or the tornado threes, whatever. No, no, no. There's attachment issues there. Their neurological aspects are trying to figure out, this is not my biological parent. How do I attach? Why do I attach, right? But they, like you said, they can't speak that. <laughs> they don't know that. And then going into adolescence, it's still those same kind of tantrums, if you will, but we see a lot more of unstable relationships, attaching, detaching very quickly. It's almost resemblance of almost bipolar, borderline personality type things, but it's them trying again to learn how to attach. They crave that connection and they know they need it, but we're way too quick to do it or we don't do it at all right? Our emotions are all over the place, which again gets blown off because that's very normal for a teenager. But if you're not looking at the background and that primal trauma, then you're not going to understand why that is. And you're going to blow it off and blame the kid. Are you seeing that kids are getting misdiagnosed with bipolar? Because in my own experience, it just seems like clinicians, therapists, doctors, they don't ask the question if you've been adopted. Right. They don't think that maybe that could be a factor in your mental health. Absolutely. And not necessarily with bipolar, because depending on age, there's age restrictions on certain diagnoses, but you're going to see a lot of kids with ADHD or um, ODD, which is oppositional defiant disorder, um, conduct disorder, all of these things. And a lot of times it's PTSD. Wow, yeah, I could see that. So these kids are probably getting medicated a lot when they really don't need it. Mm -hmm. And the root problem really isn't getting addressed. That is just so sad to me. And you know, in the book, The Primal Wound, they were talking about babies that were adopted and being left alone in the cribs and they would cry yeah. because they weren't getting that maternal stimulation or holding or anything. And so they would cry and they would right. give them phenobarbital to keep them quiet. And I just, that just breaks my heart. I can't even think about that. These poor little babies and they're grieving and they're being drugged. Yeah. It's just, it's just really hard to even think about. So we talked about you being a trauma-focused therapist. What kind of therapies, if any, are actually working for these kids in your opinion? And if you can give us a little detail about what these therapies are for those of us that might not be familiar with them. Yeah. So um, I mostly do something called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And all that means is neurologically, when our eyes move back and forth, it helps our brain communicate across hemispheres, right? And so whenever we experience something traumatic or overwhelming, if we don't want to use the word trauma for a situation, it can just be overwhelming. Sometimes our brain doesn't communicate fully because it's in that fight, flight, freeze response. And so information kind of gets stuck along the way and it doesn't get stored properly in where it needs to go in the brain. And that's when we get into like these feedback loops of, oh, I have a trigger, I'm really emotional. I have a trigger, I shut down. And there's no logic, there's not a lot of language. That's why it's hard to put language to our trauma 
even if we were cognitively there and able to use words of you know age appropriate level we often can't put words to it right because logic is in a totally different part of the brain than our emotions and so we get into these flashback loops or these emotional dysregulation times and it's really hard so emdr what is emotional deregulation yeah yeah so just being dysregulated in our emotions, meaning not that we're happy all the time, because that's not something that's healthy either. We need to be able to experience all types of emotions in a way that we can still feel in control, right? So even when I am livid about something, I'm fuming, you can see me turn red like a cartoon character, I still feel in control, right? Whenever I am sad, even if I experience some depressive type things, I'm still in control. I don't have these drastic ups and downs. I can experience an up and down and then find my medium again. Does that kind of make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Yeah. And so whenever we have these extreme ups and downs, our coping skills aren't typically going to work because coping skills are typically for somewhere that's close to the mid middle range, not an extreme up here and extreme down here right? Being manic, meaning like over-involved, very excited and eager about something that's not really realistic or down at the bottom, suicidal, homicidal type things. Coping skills aren't meant for those. Right. And I feel like the older kids especially would act out because I know in the book, they gave some examples of children even trying to sabotage their birthday parties because it was the day of their birth and they didn't want to celebrate that. And if you ask them why they were doing it, they didn't even know why they were trying to sabotage. They didn't understand even why they were doing it. Promiscuity is a big deal with older children too. And in the, in the book, they were talking about a study that was done, you know, probably back in the eighties or early nineties where there was like a huge percentage of prisoners, like 60% were adopted. And so how is that a factor in how they live their lives later on, just having that trauma and what it can do and how it can affect you in your life. But I feel like we don't correlate that adoption to having those type of problems later on. Right, that's why I was saying that for some reason, this is all new information for the communities in various professional aspects. And it's like, if we look back at, oh, they were medicating children to quiet them instead of why are these babies crying so constant, then that early, early intervention of medication, unfortunately teaches kids not to self-soothe and teaches that we can't trust someone outside of us to soothe us because we were medicated. We didn't have someone come in and soothe us and nurture us. And that's what's needed. And so, you know, the whole, let the baby cry it out. Yes, that's healthy to an extent, but when the baby can only cry it out and there's never a parental type intervention, that's when we have the different types of attachment styles that aren't healthy. So let's circle back and talk about that first treatment that, that you were discussing. So how does that work? It somehow rewires your brain to not have that trigger? 
Yeah, so what EMDR does is lets us in a very safe way. We do lots of groundwork coping skills before we get into that so we can do it safely. But like you said, it rewires the brain in a way that we can still experience the things that have traumatized us, triggered us in memories without losing that control. It desensitizes that trigger so that, like I said, we can experience that and stay in control. And then what it also does, what I like about EMDR is it integrates a more positive thinking pattern into that situation that we weren't able to use before because our brain was stuck in that fight, flight, freeze mode. And so, like you said, it just rewires it all, not to take it away. Unfortunately, we can't take away trauma. I wish I knew that therapy, whatever that would be. But with it being there, that's a matter of fact, we can stay in control and learn how to have healthier thoughts about ourselves in that situation. So the rewiring of the brain plus probably therapy, actually talking to a therapist kind of have to go hand in hand for this to work. Yeah, there has to be such a strong trusting relationship for any type of therapy to truly work. But whenever you are specifically diving into a trauma, the client has to trust that I know how to keep them safe in that because they weren't safe. They don't know that they can be safe in that. And so they have to put so much trust into me or any therapist that they're trusting with that for them to be able to quote unquote safely go back to that trauma. How quickly does this therapy tend to start working or that you would notice a difference? Yeah. And there's not a cookie cutter approach, thankfully and unfortunately, right? Because everyone's trauma thresholds are different, but typically in the very first session, clients are going to tell me, yeah, I can already notice X, Y, Z, like a decrease in this type of symptom. It might not be completely gone, but we have ways that we can measure that together so they can measure that for themselves. I'm not sitting here like, okay, well, it seems like you're at a five now. No, they do all of that for themselves because they're the expert in their journey. I'm not. I'm just there to help them navigate that pathway. Do you find that kids are very open to healing mentally? Yeah, and I think that it's drastically different and very similar in how I do therapy with kids and adults because I also do types of play therapy, sand tray therapy, and I don't just do that with kids. I do that with adults too. And so getting us reconnected with our inner child is strange for adults, so they're kind of hesitant, right? But kids, they're still in that, you know? And so a lot of what I do looks like it's just play. And if you were a fly on my wall, you would be like, what the heck are you doing? But so much therapeutic work that can happen in play because that's a child's first language. And so that helps them be so much more open to healing that very vulnerable side that makes them feel weak and confused and worthless or whatever that cognition is. And because I'm speaking their language, they're much more kind of fluid in that. And it's a lot easier. So what is sand tray therapy? Yeah. So sand tray therapy. So like I said, play is our very first form of language, right? If you think of a little baby in the store, all their stuff is going to be these certain colors that their eyes can see. We want to really engage their creative part of their brain, help them understand the world, all of that. And even when we speak to a baby, there's also typically a change in our voice. We become very sing-songy and playful. We're not talking like you and I are right now. And so our octave levels change. Everything changes. It's very, very playful that's their language, right? We never think of it that way, 
but most of us do it without even consciously trying, right? And so sand tray therapy, one, having your fingers in the sand is just this own sensory therapeutic thing in itself. But again, doing it with play, kids are going to act out a lot of their traumas without even knowing it. I had a child that um, I was seeing this family for very different reasons, but while I was seeing them, they were in a car crash that was rather bad. And the child was, um, what was she? Five, six-ish. And she had no memory of the crash. She knew what people had said about the crash, but she didn't know what happened. She just blacked out from it. And in our sand tray therapy, she ended up playing out the exact crash that happened in play. She did not intend for it. She was telling a totally different story, but I knew all of the details that she didn't. And she played out the exact trauma crash. And so subconsciously, kids' brains are trying to work on things, whether we know it or not. And so we can look up different themes and characteristics and um, patterns that they're using. And then we can help them navigate that and see like, okay, is this, you know, something we saw on TV or is this something significant for you? Right. And the kids lead sand tray therapy, play therapy, because again, even though they're a child, they're the expert in their life. So while they're playing in the sand, you're still kind of asking them the therapy questions as they're playing. Yes and no. Um, so sand tray therapy, play therapy, being child-led, I'm not asking a lot of like the interrogation questions and all of that. If they're playing something out, I'm asking very broad, open-ended questions. Like, oh, I wonder where this came from. I wonder what that character's doing. I wonder this. And that's a lot of what I do. It's just, I wonder, because their brain's already doing the work, whether I put it out there or not. And so I don't really have to do a lot of that. And with play therapy, I'm not allowed to make any assumptions about what they're doing in play until they say, this is this, right? So if they're using, I don't know, like some bunk beds and a couch, and I think, oh, they're playing house, they might be thinking, oh, this one's a car and this one's blah, blah, blah. I'm not allowed to make any assumptions until their creative mind puts it out there and says, this means this, right? And so I just help them stay in play to navigate that. And then outside of those specific therapies, you know, I'll introduce emotions and coping skills and things like that. And then you start to see the kids integrate that for themselves. I have a client that really struggles with transitioning out of the office and this little girl will go from sweet little lady to firecracker in an instant, as soon as she knows it's time to go. And she's screaming, demanding more time. And so we're working on coping skills and expressing our emotions. And I let her, right? Like, wow, that was a really loud, angry voice because she told me she was angry, right? I didn't assume she was angry. And so now that I'm validating and calling that out, now she's starting to add more emotions in. She's like, oh, well, I'm worried. That's great. And she's five, right? So she's initiating a lot of, I just give permission is all it is. So if I was a kid playing in the sand and I had a therapist there, I kind of think I would almost go into a meditative state and go into my unconscious brain and things would come up. 
you know, like when I'm meditating, it does things come up that I don't normally think about right. that make me go, Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait, you know? And yeah. so I wonder if that's kind of the same thing with the kids as they're playing in the sand and talking to you that things are coming out that they're not even realizing is in their brains. So that little girl you were talking about, if she feels safe talking to you in therapy, but doesn't want to leave because maybe she's not able to do that at home, do you also do therapy with the parents so that they can be taught these coping skills for, with their child, the things that work that you are finding that work with their child? Because those poor parents might need a little bit of help. <laughs> yes, how to cope as that parent and how to help her in different environments. Right. And so we have a cute little butterfly hug that we do, which is just having our hands like this and you tap back and forth because that's also getting different parts of the brain, right? Tapping on different sides goes from one hemisphere to the other. So a butterfly hug is calming. I even do it as an adult sometimes when I'm overwhelmed, overstimulated, whatever. Um, and it doesn't have to be here, but me and this little girl, we have our butterfly hug and our butterflies fly and help us fly down the hallway to leave. And they help us feel our anger as we're leaving and know that it's okay. Um, so I tell the parents about that, like, Hey, here's what we're doing. You know, I'm happy to share more information on why that works, but you just need to know this is helping her. Right. And I have some parents that don't necessarily care about the science of why it works but they want to know what to do, right? Um, so yeah, definitely a lot of education of, hey, this can be helpful, give it a try, let me know if you have any troubles with that or if you need some time to come speak with me about other things too. Do you teach tapping or do you use that in therapy at all? Yeah, so specifically bilateral tapping because that comes from the EMDR side of things because when our eyes are moving side to side, that's bilateral stimulation right? Moving from one side to the other. So tapping on either side of the body is also bilateral stimulation. There's some parts of our body, you know, science has already shown different tapping areas, you know, here and here, all the different areas. And so we just do a butterfly hug because it's a cute butterfly. You know, it's easy to do. Kids can grasp onto that pretty easy. Um, but I teach a lot of that more specifically to my adult clients because they can choose different body areas a little differently and tell me a little more feedback of why one feels better, why one doesn't. Um, but yeah, and then we do different types of tapping either on the backs of the hands. If someone's struggling with moving their eyes, then I might use, they're just makeup brushes because they are really soft. So I'll brush the backs of their hands bilaterally or their knees or whatever they're comfortable with. Oh, interesting. I didn't think you could do it that way too. Mm -hmm. So do you think that whether we're talking about babies or adoptive children or foster children that are older, do you think that they should start therapy before things start showing up, the trauma starts showing up in their actions and emotions and things, or should you wait until those things start to surface? I mean, I don't think therapy is ever a bad option. I think that everyone should be in therapy just to have someone in their corner, even if things are going great. Just because I'd rather have someone in my corner before things get bad and unmanageable rather than waiting till they're bad and unmanageable and then probably having to wait on a wait list. Yeah. And then by the time therapy, is the problem still there? Are we still wanting the help? 
Yeah, and in the book, they were kind of describing two different children. There's the ones that act out, you know, or outwardly acting out. And then there's the ones that are very compliant because the compliant ones seem to be adjusting totally fine, but they're the ones that are scared to death that they are going to be taken to another family again. So those children aren't outwardly showing any signs of maybe needing therapy. Absolutely. And like I was saying before, we shouldn't be assuming something until a child puts it out there, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be putting supports in place. Do you know if families get any type of counseling ahead of time for those that are adopting or thinking of taking in foster kids or adopting foster kids? Is there some kind of training for them? I don't know if they necessarily get counseling. I know that at least in the state of Indiana, they do background checks and home checks and kind of those things. And then they provide different types of trainings just on why kids might get removed, just kind of what the system is, what to expect. And then um, I believe, I could be wrong on this, but I believe they get training on something called the ACEs. Are you familiar with that? No. So the ACEs is adverse childhood experiences. And you can find the questionnaire for this just on Google. It's just, I think, 10-ish questions. And it just says, before the age of 18, did you experience this? Yes or no. Did you experience this? Yes or no. And so the number of those that you answer yes to tallies up your ACE score. And there's tons of studies on this and a lot of information I think you'd be interested in of, okay, if I have an ACE score of three, what could that mean for my future? And this is emotional stuff. This is relationship stuff. This is mental health, physical health all of that. And they've done so many studies on the higher your ACE score is, the higher likelihood that you could experience different things like cardiovascular disease, depression, suicidal thoughts, substance use, and all kinds of things. Oh, dang. That's interesting. Yeah. I'll have to put a link in the show notes or something. Yeah. I love those kind of personality tests. So yeah, I'm going to put a link in the show notes for that. Yeah, absolutely. And that one's pretty simple and anyone can kind of take that test for themselves. So my next question would be, what things have you observed in your social services role um, prior to your therapy role? Did you observe that, what are the things that just aren't maybe working? Things that need to be looked at and reformed? Yeah, so I think that like you were asking, you know, do the foster or adoptive families get specific education? I think that we're trying to do more education. And I know that funding is a big problem and all these different things. But I think that like you asked, do they get counseling? I don't know if they get counseling, but if they do, it's not as long term as I think it should be. Because, you know, we might check in on someone's mental health to see if they're quote unquote stable, but are we sticking with them therapeutically before the process starts, during the process and afterwards, whenever it's a quote unquote successful adoption, because a lot of times whenever things get comfortable and settle down, that's when a lot of problems are going to come out, right? Because now that kid that was sabotaging things or the one that was compliant yeah. might start feeling safe and some behaviors might start popping up. 
right? And I don't think people correlate that all the way back to the primal wound or the separation. Absolutely. So I'm sure you see so many different scenarios, but what are some of the most important things that you think a family should be considering or think about when they are thinking about placing a child into their home? Yeah, so fostering is one that I've struggled so much because I obviously I love helping. I literally do it for a living, but the emotional attachment that someone has to have that's very limited, but also very, very close and intimate to be a foster parent is outrageous to my brain because you have to be willing to take someone else's child that you did not birth and you've had no control in their parenting, which I also don't think is educated well enough on for these foster families, but you have to be willing to take this other child in, which sounds great. It sounds very foo-foo and, you know, I'm going to do good and help this child of whatever age. Great. But you have to also know that you aren't keeping this child. And that's traumatic for a lot of people. And we don't expect that to then give up this child that we put so much work into that we quote unquote saved from the system. Right. So that part of it, but then also the impact that that has on the child because a lot of times when you go into foster care, you're hopping around from one family to the next. And even if you are lucky enough to just have one foster family, you still might go back to your biological family. And so if you go into this foster family and they have more money than you had at your biological home, if they have more resources, they live in a better home, whatever it is. And then you go back to wherever it was that your biological family is, that's a very big culture shock, right? And I don't think families are educated on knowing, oh, I feel good putting this kid in dance and taking him to Disney and we have all the nicest things. That's not manageable for the home that they might be going back to. And obviously that's not for all. Well, what happens if the child doesn't want to go back to their biological family and they want to stay with the foster family? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because that seems like would be the hardest part. If I was the foster parent, seeing the foster child just bawling and crying and being taken away from me and they don't want to go. Yeah. That would be so tough. I don't know, man. That would be so hard. So I would like to end with a happy story. <laughs> Your dad is one of my lifelong time friends and buddies. And you two had quite the journey reconnecting. So can you end by telling us about your reconnection with your dad? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, I live in Southern Indiana. Dad lives out in California. He's from here. So that's how him and my mom met when he was in college here. And they were both feisty young humans and probably not the best pair if they would have actually stayed together forever. But um, surprise. Here I came. And so dad went along his path, mom went along her path, and his path took him back to California, right? And both of them, like I said, young, dumb, irresponsible, yet responsible in different ways. And so due to just parent stuff, I didn't have a lot of interaction at all. I knew that I had a dad, 
And I knew that he wrote my mom. I knew that he paid child support. And that's really all I knew about him. I had a chance to meet him when I was five. And I, my mom asked me, you know, if I wanted to, and I had a nightmare about what horror that would be like, and just all these terrible five-year-old things. And like, I remember that nightmare to this day. It was that vivid. And so I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Because in my brain, it was here, you're going to meet him and I'm going to leave you. And it's going to be weird and scary and whatever, which not what would have happened. And I know that now. So then fast forward a handful of years and I decide to write him. And I think, I don't know how long it took for him to write back. In my brain, it was a lifetime, but I don't think it was. <laughs> but so he wrote me back when I was 10 or 11 years old. And then we just wrote back and forth through snail mail for a couple of years. And then we got a computer at my house. And so I emailed him. Then it's a little faster communication. And from the very first letter that he ever sent me, I had his phone number, but I couldn't bring myself to call him because I was like, what do I call him? Do I call him Jim? Do I call him James? Do I call him dad? Do I call him pop? Like, what do I call him? This is weird, right? <laughs> and so I couldn't do it. Not only from that, but the fear of losing what I knew was out there. If I can attach a voice to this person and then it falls apart, that's so much more real than a letter, right? So I was scared. And then I was about 15, 14, I think. And I just called him one day and he picked up and I said, uh, hi, uh, dad, this is Karina. And ever since then, you know, we've had phone calls and what communication we can have being thousands of miles away from each other. And then whenever I was 17, we started talking about me coming out to meet him. And my mom was furious because her own things, right? But she was like, he needs to come here to meet you. But really, I just wanted out of the house for our own family. <laughs> I need out of your house and uh, I'm going to use this. And so when I was 18, he flew me out and I met him and Christy and my brother, Nathan, and everyone over there for the first time. And it was wonderful. And I was going out once a year to meet him and um, our relationship's great. My relationship with my dad is actually better than my mom who lives five minutes away from me. And I never in my life thought that would happen at all. Oh, wow. So you didn't meet your brother till you came out to California either. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't meet anybody. You got to see everybody. <laughs> My first California family visit, I met the whole slew over there. And I was just like, okay, I know family tree like you are you and you. I don't know any of you. <laughs> I'm, I'm a stranger. Y'all are weird. Like y'all are great and y'all are nice. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Well, I don't know what your mom looks like, but I can sure see a resemblance with your dad for sure. Funny. I have one picture that has me and my mom and my dad together. That's the only one that exists. And it was after my master's graduation. And if you look at pictures from here up, I'm my mom. And from here down, I'm my dad. Oh, funny. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So was there anything else that you wanted to add before we sign off? Um, 
No, I think we kind of touched on it. The biggest thing is just there needs to be more patient education for those involved in fostering or adoption or guardianship, whatever that is, because I think that there's a huge priority on getting these kids out of the system as fast as possible. And that's just disrespectful to them. It honestly is where the biggest harm comes in. Um, I worked in a few different adoption scenarios and I've seen both sides of it going very well and very, very bad. And so I think just that patience and education is where the focus needs to come in. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And I just want to reiterate how important your job is. And I'm sure that you don't hear thank you enough. So I am saying thank you from the bottom of my heart, from the kids and families that you help every day. I know that you have such a heart for it and that you care so much for these kids. So I just want to thank you for that. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, can I ask you for a favor? Could you please leave a rating, comment, and share this podcast to friends, family, or to your social media pages? You have no idea how much these little gestures help get the word out about this podcast. Don't forget to click the subscribe tab to get notified of future episodes so you won't miss a thing. You can also find my Instagram and Facebook links in the show notes if you would like to follow and support me there as well. Lastly, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the Adoption Chronicles season of the podcast, you can email me at mindyourownkarma at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week.